today's episode of Just an Ordinary Introvert, I will be interviewing Ms. Kavinsky, an English high school teacher at Central High Continuation. She will enlighten us with her knowledge of being an ELA teacher for the past 19 years and provide us with some insight on how it is teaching reading and writing through Zoom and in the classroom. First question is, what are your beliefs as an English language arts teacher? My beliefs? You mean about teaching English language arts or about students? Both. Okay, well, <laughs> let me see. Um, I think that it's really important to teach kids to read closely and um, and to and to think critically. That that's really mostly the function of an English teacher is, and also to recognize that everybody that you have in your class, no matter how talented they are, are still learning how to read, and they're still learning how to write. So even all the way through college, people are still learning how to read and write, and 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 to read more difficult text and to read more closely for meaning and to understand where an author is coming from and that you know and to really parse the difference between opinion and fact and 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 especially when people are presenting their opinions as fact right to be able to do that kind of checking for themselves so that they can really understand an argument especially in um this environment that we're in today, where people creating media lie and know that they're lying and do it as convincingly as possible because they know that they're lying, right? So I think students need recourse, like they need to have the skills to be able to parse an argument and to be able to find out on their own um, what's true and what's not true. And, and to be able to rebut, you know, to to be able to think, but what about this? And what about that? And there's this evidence and that evidence that you're ignoring, right? So increasingly, the longer I've taught English, the more I've come to understand that those are the things, like to be able to read a contract and understand what you're signing, you know, to, to like really um, give kids skills that they need, not just for college, but for life um, as well. So, you can be a, a dentist. You can go to school for all the years required to become a dentist and never read another poem or another, another novel for the rest of your life and you'll be fine. But you really can't function in this world if you can't read an argument, make an argument and understand the difference between fact and opinion. And yeah. so I, you know, I just think that those things are really important. That's, I, I agree. Yeah, close reading. And to be able to fact check people, like find out what's going on, to be able to understand a certain amount of legalese or, or how to get somebody to help you with that, you know, so that you're not helpless. How do you determine what, sorry, Nick, uh, I skipped the question. How do your beliefs inform your teaching practices? Um, I think 
one of the one of the things like I, I'm gonna kind of twist that question a little bit. Okay. I think one of the things I've come to do over the years more and more and more is work one-on-one -on -one with kids whenever it's possible. Right. Even when I had huge classes of AP students, I still set up my class in such a way that you would write a paper, I would give you a grade, and then you had an opportunity to come in for a writing conference with me, to sit down with me and talk to me one-on-one -on -one about your writing, and then go back and do a revision and have that count. Now, a lot of AP teachers will do that and they'll average the grades. I never did that because I think if you can take the feedback and you can do what I'm asking you to do, and sometimes depending on what, you know, what shape the kids in skill wise, I may be focusing on just one thing and letting a bunch of other things go and understanding that I have a whole school year. But if I'm dealing with a kid who's got a pretty full toolbox, then I'm going to be dealing with the whole paper and how do you fix this whole paper, or I might just be working with how do you cite sources with this kid or something like that. It, it depends like how they present their skills to me. Um, and, and also the interaction in the writing conference, how overwhelmed are they? You know, how much are they taking it on board and how much are they just going, oh, oh. <laughs> like, I don't get it. <laughs> so, but I always gave them whichever grade was higher. Because if you go home and you take your paper apart and you put it back together and you submit it to me and it's worse than it was before because you totally didn't understand anything, I'm going to acknowledge that effort by letting you keep the original grade and still talking to you about what happened. <laughs> you had a meltdown and you just threw the whole fourth page away. Like what happened? Um, and then, of course, if it does improve, then I think you deserve that whole credit for that whole improvement. So if you turned in a C paper and you came in and sat with me and then you went home and you turned in an A paper, I'm going to give you the A, even though I helped you a lot with it. Um, and now, you know, with these kids that I'm that I'm working with at continuation school and the distance learning model that we have, it's why I use a Google Slides a lot, because while they're on the Google Slides, I take it off projection. So I'm looking at that what they're doing, but nobody else is looking at what they're doing. And I'm on their slide with them and I'm showing them things while they're writing because I had to be in graduate school before a professor sat down beside me and worked with my sentences and worked with my writing. And it was a revelation. I was like, oh my God, why didn't someone do this before? <laughs> you know, they're looking at phrasing and they're going, see, you've really actually already said this. And so you don't need this second phrase and you can take it out and you need a comma here because it's very confusing without one. Stuff like that. I, I was, it was just like, so I've, ever since I had that experience, about 10 years ago, I, whenever I can, sit down with kids about their writing. And on the, in the online environment, it's much easier because you can just, you know, put them on their own separate thing. And then you go in and you're talking to them about it. And then I can even, depending on the skill, skill level, I can even do something like, watch this. And then look, if I take this phrase out, watch what happens to your sentence. And then I take it out. And they say, which one do you like better? And they always like the briefer one better because it's clear, right? And so you, you're actually showing them how sentences improve when you do something like this. Or, you know, if I'm dealing with somebody with really basic skills, I might say, 
Well, the first thing you need to do is go through and capitalize all the names because you didn't, right? Or in the beginning of the year, this the refrain was, make sure all your sentences start with a capital letter and all your sentences end with a period. Now, I don't have to say that anymore now in April. Like I never say that to anyone anymore. But at the beginning of the school year, it was like, oh, that's all I said. And mostly it's because people let them get away with stuff. Like they don't insist that, you know, that they do even the basic thing. So, you know, then it's really individuated instruction as well. You're giving that kid what he needs, not just what that kid needs, but what that kid needs in that moment, which is really good. And then on Schoology, when they turn things in, I get an email from Schoology and I go in and look at it and then I click respond to the email and I say, what a great job you did. I love the way you hung in there, right? I know it's hard to have someone working with your writing, you were so brave, whatever, you know, is appropriate. But I always try to give feedback and kids like Joanna, I know she will make as many revisions as I ask her to. So I never accept anything except perfection really from Joanna because I'll go in and say, look, all of it is really great except this one thing right here. And she'll go make that one thing change and she'll resubmit it. But not many kids are like that. So often I, I pick the victory that I want. And when I get that victory, I go, yay, good for you, full points. I feel like you answered the following question already because um, it was like, how do you determine what to teach your students as readers and writers? Yeah. So. I'm working a lot with, you know, like claim reviews and an evidence mostly because the principal wanted us to, but I would do that anyway, because that's what, you know, that's what I learned from teaching AP Lang for so many years, which is how, is, how important teaching argument is, right? And being able to see what the arguments other people are making and the proof that they're using and stuff like that. And I like to hook it to like, what's going on in the world right now? Like what's happening? So I get a, I'll get a text set of like, right now I've got too many sources. So we're doing a little unit on reparations, right? And I have too many sources and then now I have to weed them down. I want at least two of them to be articles. I want a couple of videos, you know, and then I'd like to find some kind of chart or graph or something like that um, to put in there too, to see like, can you understand what this is showing? instead of just skipping it because it's like, oh, there's a graph, you know, and nothing complicated, but showing like, you know, how the um, support for reparations has changed over time or something like that. I haven't found that piece yet, but I'm, I'm looking for it. I want to end up with like six, six sources and I don't ever want to tell them what to think. Like, I don't want to present sources to say, oh, this is such a great idea. We should do it. Like, I never want to be that guy. So if I'm gonna get six sources, I might try to get two in favor of a proposition, two against a proposition and two completely neutral factual kind of sources for them. And then I'm gonna ask them, what do you think? And I'm, and I'm trying to, um, like some of the negative sources, I'm making sure that I have African-American people who are saying they don't agree with reparations because I want the argument against to be as strong as the argument for whenever possible so that they can make up their own minds 
about what they really think about it and not be trying to please me and say what I what they think I want to hear because I'm not interested actually in what their opinion is. <laughs> I'm only interested that they have one. And then how do you support that? You know, why do you think that way? What, you know, what would you point to, to say, this is why I think this way. So, you know, that's what I'm trying to get them to do. And then I have various success with that, you know, kid by kid. But again, like I told you before, when we talked, if I'm going to do something like claim, reason, and argument, I'm going to do it three or four times with three or four different things. Because to do it once and then leave it, it doesn't, what only sticks with them sometimes is the content. Say, so, oh, we talked about, you know, music. And it's not going to be we talked about claim, reason, and evidence. Not the first one. It's going to be we talked about music. And then if we do it on like voter ID laws, then it's going to be a little more about claim review. And every time when I'm moving from one to the next one, I'm asking them to be more sophisticated. So when we did the music argument, it was very much, what do you, what do you, you know, what do you think? Kind of like, what do you like about music? And why do you like that artist? And tell, you know, and, but now when we're talking about reparations, I'm going to want them to cite people and, and try to, and, and this time I'm going to teach them how to put their citation in parentheses. And, you know, so you, it gets increasingly more sophisticated each time I do it. And then it becomes, this is about claim, reason, and evidence is not about music, voter ID laws, in basic, universal basic income or reparations. It's about how do you make an argument so that they don't get wrapped up in the content. And that's the other thing with like, showing short films to analyze, which I like to do. Well, show it twice. Cause the first time, all you can do is watch the film. <laughs> you know, it's like you get the story. And then the second time, then you can start to take the story apart. How do you meet the needs of your culturally and linguistically diverse students? Um, I try to do things that I think they will care about. You know, so then I'm looking at issues that are going on to work with. I'm trying to get um, issues that impact them, maybe. Um, I'm, I'm trying to work with them as much as I can one-on-one. -on -one. Um, I took, like, I took an article. I want to use a piece of an article from the New Yorker. So I took the article. <laughs> this is made, probably isn't even legal. I took the article and I put it into a Word document and I changed the Lexa level myself. And I took everything out of it that wasn't pertinent to, because a New Yorker article will follow a pattern. It'll start with a story about somebody and I'm like, I just wanted the part about voter ID laws. So I took out like all but four paragraphs of that article. And then when it was using a word that could be replaced by an easier word, I did you know, just to make it so that they could read the New Yorker article more easily. Um, so I do things like that. Obviously, I'm not that ashamed of it. <laughs> so how do you assess your students as readers and writers? I ask them to read, you know, like old school, I ask them to read outside out, out loud. You can tell um, the, how fluent someone is reading 
um, text aloud, um, how well, you know, you could tell a lot actually from it. And, um, and, and, you know, there's certain kids who, who are so bright and stuff and they, they present really with it and everything like that. And then you ask them to read out loud and you can see where they struggle and you can, you can see how, you know, when English isn't their first language, the words that they, they don't know how to pronounce or, and you can also see the words that they um, have never seen written down before, you know, words that they use and they understand, but they've never seen it in, in writing. So they pause and they don't know like what that word is. And then you tell it to them and it's like, oh my God. <laughs> so I like to ask kids to read out loud. Um, I think it's really good for them, but I also think it's really good for me. And the more they do it, the more fluent they become. It just, it just helps a lot. And um, so in that, I'm trying always to lighten the whole atmosphere when kids are reading, like it's no big deal. It doesn't matter if you stumble, it's, it doesn't, you know, we can laugh at ourselves too. I make mistakes all the time, that kind of thing. Um, what was the rest of that question? I lost it. Um, so how do you assess your students as readers and writers? Oh, as, and writers, the only way to assess student with students as writers is make them write, you know, ask them to write. And, um, you know, we've, we've had kids here that, that are really, really got a full, you know, really know what they're doing. And we've had kids that really, really are very reluctant writers. So, um, I, yeah, just, just to meet them where they are. You know, I think the best way to get in is to be helpful. Like to, I tell kids all the time when I'm working one-on-one -on, -one on their writing that I'm, it's like, I'm your coach. You know, think of this like um, soccer or basketball or a musical instrument or something like that. Um, it's like a drill, you know, I'm asking you to write. I ask them to write all the time. And it's, and it's like, so when I get into your writing, it's going to, it's like a coach getting into your layup. I say, no, don't, don't, um, don't take off from your left foot, take off from your right foot. It's, it's like that, you know, it's to make that. So take the personal stinger out of it as much as possible. So what is one of the most effective instructional methods you use for teaching, reading and writing? I don't know how to answer that. Um, you know, cause no one thing that works for all kids. This is just no blanket that you can throw over them. Um, I guess if I was going to say the one thing, it's um, it's the individual writing conference that, that set up so that even if you give them some kind of like poster to do or something like that, and while they're working on the poster, you're walking around the room getting into their writing with them one-on-one. -on -one. Or the other thing I like to do when we were face-to-face -face is instead of giving a paper and having it due at a certain date, we write the paper in class. So they're all at their tables and, um, and I usually put them like people working on the same kind of idea. So, you know, we were talking the other day about teaching theme instead of teaching novels. Um, so they're at tables according to what theme they're working on so they can talk to one another because it's not a test, it's a paper. And they get to say, hey, how do you do this like thing? 
or did you understand this part about Billy Pilgrim? They get to talk to one another and then they get to talk to me too. And so while they're working on it, so I'll provide like a detailed outline of what I'm looking for and ask them to do it and stuff like that. So there's all these stages, scaffolding heading into the assignment when they're writing, but having them write while they're in the room is so much better than having them write when they're home and thus they're really high functioning. So, and most of the kids I've had in my life, even in my AP classes were not that high functioning. <laughs> like most of my kids that I got in my AP classes were not, you know, they, were, they didn't have this, the chops to be there. But the only, um, the only deal that I was like, this is gonna be four times more work than you're used to. And if you're willing to work, then I'm willing to also, cause it's gonna be a lot of work for me as well. And so if you tell me right now that you're gonna do whatever is required, then you can come, I don't care what your skills are. And then even if you don't pass the AP test, say you get a two or something like that, right? That means you're ready to start college. I guarantee you, if you sign the contract with me to come in and work hard, that your skills will improve a lot. Like I'm not gonna guarantee you you pass the AP test, but I am gonna, I am gonna guarantee you that you'll you'll improve if you do the work. And so while they're writing, I'll pull up a chair and sit beside them. And the questions I get are, Miss, is this a good thesis? I'll sit down and read their introduction and give them advice about their thesis. They say, well, you know what? You really need like a because, right? So I see your thesis, but I want you to tell me why you think that. And like, so give me more. And then we start talking about it. Or if a kid is really like frozen, <laughs> I'll sit down and put hands on his keys and say, what do you think about this? You know, just to see whatever is gonna unstick them and take the um, thing off of writing. The only question I won't answer when we're writing in the room is, well, I will answer it. Miss, will you read my paper and tell me if it's good? I'll say, no, <laughs> no, I'm not gonna grade your paper before you turn it in. But, or I'll go, do you have a specific question? Like a specific question is, how do I cite this source? That's a specific question, right? Or a specific question might be, does this paragraph hold together? Do I have enough evidence? I'll answer any question like that while we're writing in the room. You kind of have them workshop. Yes, and I call it writing workshop, mm -hmm. right? I don't want them sitting home dying as I have done so many times in my life in tears because I don't know how to start. The first time I ever did that, what you just explained was my first English college course. And it right. was like intro to English because I didn't meet the college level yet. I was like one below. And we did that like for almost all our papers. Right, and I did it for all their papers in regular 12th grade. And the question I would I would say to you then is why did it take till you got to college? For someone to understand that you need help to learn how to write. So I would, I tell my kids all the time, writing isn't natural, right? Talking is natural. You, you have all the hardware you need in your brain when you're born to pick up talking from all the people around you talking, but writing is not natural. And there have been languages and cultures that never had a written component. So you need someone to teach you how to do it. You didn't just fall out of your mother knowing how to write. So why do you have to get to college before somebody will take the gloves off and sit down beside you 
and show you what you need. Because telling people stuff doesn't work. <laughs> Showing them works. So what is the biggest challenge you face as a teacher of reading and writing? Kids who are afraid to try. Yeah, that's the hardest one. And, and online, it's even worse. So when we when I have kids who, when um, they understand that we're going to be writing, leave immediately. <laughs> leave the meeting. Oh, yep. Click. Right. So that's the hardest one. And so what I do with that online is I go into private chat and I say, Sarah, we're writing today and I want you to stay with me. I'm not going to show you writing. I want you to talk to me on private chat. Even if you don't write a word today, I want you to stay. And then she ends up writing half of it. Hmm. Right. So it's like I use the private chat a lot like that. Half the time, there's like pauses in my room and I just go, hang on, guys, I'm talking to somebody and they wait for me. Because otherwise, I don't know how to reach them individually. Right. And, and that's what writers need. They need, especially if they have educational trauma, which most of these kids have. But I would say almost every kid I taught had some form of educational trauma, you know, around, especially around writing, where they've just been made to believe that they are, there's something wrong with them if they can't do it. No one's ever told them how to do it. So they've only ever told them to do it or the way that they've been told how to do it is so complicated and convoluted, they're just like, man. And then they do everything they can and they get a C or something like that. Or they think they've written the most brilliant paper in the world on their own and they get a C. You know, so it's like there has to be multiple submissions. There has to be like one-on-one -on -one, and it has, there has to be a way to take the stinger out that writing isn't your value as a human being. You know, the first time you went to shoot a basket, it probably didn't even get there, right? It probably just went and didn't even touch the rim or anything like that. So it's writing is like that. And it just, it just takes practice and you can't take it personally. And, you know, with my other kids, when we were in the classroom, I would give assignments like um, uh, Precy so it's only four sentences and each sentence has a job of anal analysis and it's really, really hard. And they'd be 25 points per sentence. And then I would, they'd come in the room and I'd say, so who wants me to put their precy up on the overhead projector? And by the second time, they're like, they walk through the door, miss do mine, miss do mine. Cause once they see how gentle you are, and I always say to them, you know, I have tremendous respect for writers. Like, I'm never going to make you feel stupid for anything that you've done with writing because it's so hard, right? And so when they see the respect that I give and stuff like that, they're just like, oh, they want to do it. They want to show. And then, you know, plus whoever put, gives their thing for demonstration purposes, um, they just get the points and they don't have to do a rewrite. So it just takes it, it makes it like it's a whole group workshop thing and we take the precious out and, you know, and I, you know, I have kids that never put their, their thing up 
for discussion will come by at lunchtime and go, Miss, will you look at my? Because <laughs> they want the attention, but they don't want it in the whole room. So, you know, unfortunately, uh, I just would sit, I, I just don't go to lunch. You know, I'm one of those teachers that people say, don't be this teacher, right? The kids are in my room at lunchtime. I'm there after school with kids and, you know, it's just, I think if you're going to teach English, that's just how it's going to be. <laughs> yeah. So, like, what do you enjoy most about teaching ELA? You can talk about real things. Yeah. You can talk about things that matter. Right? And, and I think that it's so... Um, is so much more freedom in it than having to teach content. So I ta also taught AP Psych for a while. And for the first year, I've, I was like a liberation to me. Finally, I was teaching content instead of skill, right? So it was like, yeah, here's the facts, here's the facts, study it, take your notes, do your thing. But, but English is like, if you're gonna give them anything, like even a piece of fiction, a piece of nonfiction, you're talking about real life. That's the best thing about it. The only people who get relationships with kids like English teachers do are coaches. If I wasn't an English teacher, I'd be a coach, which is why when I'm doing writing, I tell them, think of me as your coach. <laughs> but you can have the best relationship with kids because you talk about things that are real. And I think teaching is relationship. Yeah, I also think that's a great part of ELA. It's a lot of work, though. So I often say when my next life, I'm coming back as a PE teacher. <laughs> you should have chose to be a PE teacher. Because <laughs> right, they don't go home with a, you know, pile of work to do all the time. Yeah. But they're at games until seven. So whatever. Thank you for tuning into today's episode and see you all next week.